The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. So today, what I'm going to do is something I don't do every single year on Sanctity of Life Sunday, but I believe the Lord burdened me to do it this year. And that is to preach through a biblical text that talks about how we should approach abortion and the gospel. That's the title of today's sermon. This is a heavy topic, so let me give four statements to you up front. Number one, God is glorious. And may something like this not obscure God's great glory in all of its perfections, particularly in his person-forming work in the womb. Number two, Christ is a great Savior. Indeed, he is a greater Savior than any sin that has been committed by any sinner. Praise God. Number three, Christ is compassionate. So those who feel helpless, harassed, and lost, there is a good shepherd for shepherdless sheep, and any who call out for help will receive the compassion of Christ. Number four, surely followers of Christ should exhibit compassion like the Christ they follow. Thus, Christians should be known for our compassion to those struggling, to those sinning, to those faltering, because apart from the grace of God, that is all of us. So those four statements, may they guide us this morning, so that today's topic, though heavy, will feel healing, and that the grace of God will be a salve for the deepest of our wounds. In fact, for those of you perhaps most directly touched by a text like this one or a topic like this one, my prayer is that on the other side of a sermon like this one, you will feel more hope than you did before him and more desire to talk to me or other pastors and have opportunity to feel and experience the healing that Christ provides. Now, this morning will be a heavy sermon. So through the parts that are heavy, like the text that was just read, Don't lose sight of the grace of God and the cross that we'll return to. Okay? Now we're in Psalm 106. Can you turn to Psalm 106? Our brother led Leviticus 20 because we need that. But Psalm 106 is the passage we're going to focus on today. And as you can see on the screen, we're going to especially focus on the middle of it, just for time's sake, though I hope you read all of it later this afternoon. Let me deal with some objections right up front. Here's an objection. Someone might say, Josh, why are you discussing abortion? Isn't this a political issue? Here, it's good for us to remember anything that is biblical, it's irrelevant whether or not it's political. If it's biblical, it's a thus saith the Lord issue. Further, you could argue, well, it's partisan. No, it's not partisan. The image of God is not partisan. It's theological truth. The sanctity of all life must be talked about. And the Lord is not silent about the shedding of innocent blood. And let's be honest with ourselves. Sometimes when we say, hey, don't talk about that because it's political, we mean it's not my kind of political. (laughs) So we need that kind of honesty. Further, we need to be aware, every one of us, certainly myself included, that Christians, all of us, are more compromised in our worldview than we think. Even if we're saying, no, no, I I wouldn't this or that, I bet we might share the same views underneath that, even if we haven't done the same things. 
Now, the Bible literally in Genesis 1 talks about the sanctity of human life. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Verse 27, So God created man in his own image. The image of God he created them, male and female he created them. But already by Genesis 4, we have the taking of innocent life when Cain murders his brother Abel. But the way God responds is still relevant today. God says this, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Did you know that God still hears the voice crying of those who are innocently murdered? The shedding of innocent blood calls to a just God. Let me go further. A second objection you could have already at this point. You could say, all right, fine. I guess the Bible talks about sanctity of life. But why would you focus on abortion? I mean, aren't there other areas where life could be terminated unjustly. Well, first let me say, as Christians, we should be about the sanctity of life in all areas. Surely we should speak against racially motivated homicide. We should speak against homicide generally. We should speak against suicide. We should speak against euthanasia. We should speak against all unjust killing. But why focus on abortion in particular? Let me speak to that for a moment. When President Reagan in 1984 on January 22nd set the precedent of Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, he did so the year after, by the way, in 1983, he made Martin Luther King Jr. Day a federal holiday. And those are related sins, actually. But when he made that, it was because he was seeing that abortion was becoming such a significant problem. And churches for years have followed that. How significant of a problem? Since Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 62 million abortions have occurred in the United States. That comes out to an average of 700,000 babies aborted per year. Let me put that in perspective for you. Last year in the year 2020, the CDC attributes 350,000 deaths to maybe being related to COVID complications. That's about half the amount of abortions committed in the same year. And yet I bet you didn't hear about abortions every hour on the hour. But you did about COVID. Um, also notice the CDC admits that heart disease was the cause of death for 696,962 Americans in the same year. Cancer, 602,350. And just to put it in further perspective, the CDC notes that homicides caused by firearms were less than 15,000, meaning that abortion outpaces every other cause of death exponentially. But you know how if you go to see a magic show, the magician diverts your attention so you don't see what he's doing over here? You should know that those who work in news, media, and journalism are diverting your attention so you don't see what's happening over here. Hence why it's so urgently important that we talk about what no one else is talking about. Psalm 82 says in verse 4, Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Those who are aborted obviously had no right to speak for themselves making it unlike every other type of termination of life. Now, I know the introduction's longer this morning. We will get to Psalm 106, I promise. But I need to give us a little bit more information so that we approach it relevantly. I believe the person who is most influencing the way we think about abortion is a professor at Princeton, of all places, a place that was once led by Jonathan Edwards, but now the professor of bioethics at Princeton. His name is Peter Singer. 
Peter Singer, for decades, has written on abortion. And he is influencing the way the average man on the street thinks more than we realize. Now, he's a few steps ahead of the average man on the street. But the average man on the street is thinking the way Peter Singer has taught us to think. See, Peter Singer is interesting because he's an ethicist who primarily believes we make decisions based on what makes us personally happy. Have you seen that worldview? (laughs) So think of that worldview tied to the issue of abortion. What Singer does that's so profound is he rejects all the most common pro-choice arguments. For example, many pro-choice arguments are based on the dividing line, so-called, between being in the womb or out of it. But Singer, to his credit, acknowledges that that's arbitrary and silly because you can be born prematurely and survive. And because sonograms show that you're alive. Further, he rejects another common pro-choice argument, which is the argument of viability. Singer rightly points out that viability is based totally on where you live and when you live. It's not based on any other factor. Now, the third and most common argument that pro-choice people use is the, is the, this is a woman's body and it's her right argument. But Singer even rejects that one. He says that since happiness is the highest good, that the fetus, in his terms, has the potential to make many other people happy. Therefore, it's not up to the woman alone. So wait, how would Singer be the leading voice of abortion when he rejects all the pro-choice arguments? Here's the reason. Singer puts in writing what people really believe but are afraid to say out loud. And here's what Singer's been writing for a long time. That being a human does not make you a person. Being a human does not make you a person. Let me give you some quotes from his works. Here's something he wrote. People's concern about embryos and fetuses suggest only a biased concern for the lives of members of our own species. On any fair comparison of morally relevant characteristics like rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, autonomy, pleasure, a calf and a pig and the much derided chicken come out well ahead of the fetus at any stage of pregnancy. Whereas if we make the comparison with an embryo or a fetus of less than three months, a fish shows much more awareness. See, what Singer's arguing is that human life has no distinct value, that a human is not distinctively created in any important image. Then he goes further. He says, being a human does not make you a person, but certain attributes do. Let me quote him again. He writes, My suggestion is that we accord the life of a fetus no greater value than the life of a non-human animal at a similar level of rationality, self-consciousness, awareness, capacity to feel. Did you catch what he's saying? You're only a human if you can do certain things. Now, if you're thinking ahead, wouldn't that mean that many humans could be murdered? Singer knows that. And so he writes this. Infanticide needs to be strictly legally controlled and rare. Have you heard that phrase before? But it should not be ruled out any more than an abortion. He writes later, killing a defective infant is not morally equivalent to killing a person. Sometimes it's not wrong at all. Singer's argument then is that whether or not someone is a human is whether or not they can perform certain functions. But his key logic, and this is where you and I are more guilty than we think, is that one's personal happiness is the ultimate God that we must bow to, which is why he writes this later. The birth of a child is usually happy, 
So one important reason that it's normally terrible to kill an infant is the effect it'll have on their parents. (laughs) So only if they want the child. But then he continues. But if the child has a defect, the normally joyful event of birth becomes a threat to the happiness of the parents and any other future children they may choose. See, Singer is the perfect ethicist for our cultural moment where the one unalterable truth is that I deserve the right to pursue my own happiness against any cost or collateral consequences. Singer tries to walk back some of what he's written, but the reality is that for him, the therapeutic feeling of wanting or not wanting a child is what determines whether or not a child deserves to live. Now, if you think Surely Singer's off there in his ivory tower in Princeton, and he's not actually affecting policy or culture. You are badly mistaken. On April 3rd in 2016, Hillary Clinton said this out loud. The unborn person does not have constitutional rights. Now, where did she get that logic from? The answer, Peter Singer. Why does the average American think that life is only life if it doesn't inconvenience my life? The answer, Peter Singer. So know this. C.S. Lewis helps us here very much when he wrote, The greatest evil is not now done in those sordid dens of crime or in concentration camps or labor camps. It is conceived and ordered in clean, carpeted, warmed, and well-lighted offices by quiet men with white collars and cut fingernails and smooth, shaven cheeks who do not need to raise their voices. We should know this this morning. The greatest evil done in the world is done by the well-read, well-spoken, well-educated, and well-dressed who callously discuss dismembering a human while casually enjoying an overpriced salad. Singer and his writings are part of the coursework at the University of North Carolina, at NC State, and at Duke. The future leaders who will shape our politics and who will shape our culture are being influenced by his teaching. So let's just state the matter honestly once we put away all the fancy language. Once you put away the fancy language, here's what we're actually doing as a country. We're saying if I want my baby, my baby's a person. If I don't want my baby, my baby's not a person. And I have the sovereign right to determine who is and who isn't a person. What the Bible says clearly is there actually is a sovereign God who determines who is a person. (laughs) who has knit persons together in their mother's womb, and the creative ability is his. We're so confused about this as a culture that in late November of 2020, Meghan Markle, who was then the the Duchess of Sussex, wrote an article about miscarrying who she called her second child. Not to let the opportunity pass, NBC News almost immediately wrote an article by Daniel Campoamore, in which she argued that the child was only a child because Megan wanted her. But if Megan didn't want her, then she would no longer be a child. You could accuse Danielle of being selfish, which she expected. So Danielle wrote this. When we can take control of our own lives, when we tell our own stories and shape our own narratives, we are demonized. We're accused of selfish for making our own decisions about our own bodies. If those decisions make others uncomfortable, then we're called selfish for deciding when and how and why to share our pregnancy outcomes. See, the spirit of our age is a spirit that has actually influenced and impacted you and I. 
The idea that we are sovereign and our own pursuit of our own happiness is everything. In fact, did you know that during the pandemic shutdowns, COVID increased tremendously? No, sorry, not COVID increased tremendously. Abortion increased tremendously. Abortion was previously mainly surgical, but now it's becoming medical or pharmaceutical or chemical. Because of President Biden's emergency declaration of health, the FDA no longer needs to approve or meet with those requiring or desiring abortions. Therefore, abortion has increased tremendously. Emily Bazelon is writing for the New York Times and writes how excited she is that the FDA is no longer involved and how hopeful she is that we will not return to pre-pandemic controls. I hope you realize something this morning. Those who've been arguing most loudly for shutdowns for the ostensible purpose of saving lives have been simultaneously increasing the termination of lives at an unprecedented rate. Thus, let's let God speak to us from Psalm 106. And if you received a bulletin this morning, you'll see four truths on it that I see in Psalm 106 and how we can learn from them. You should read the whole psalm this afternoon. But we're going to pick up in verse 34. And by that point, Psalm 106 has been chronicling the sad story of Israel's history from exodus to exile. It's actually been building, not just chronicling on a line, but showing how much worse things became for Israel. They disobeyed, they disobeyed, but then it got worse, then it got worse, then it got worse. And this is his final chronicle. It's the climax of Israel's descent, their nadir, their lowest point of sinfulness. And from them we can learn things that are true for us still. Psalm 106, number one on your bulletin. We must separate from the world's wicked idolatry. Psalm 106, look in verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples, the evil idolaters of Canaan, as the Lord commanded them. But instead, verse 35, they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. Some of you perhaps maybe are less familiar with the Bible storyline. So maybe verse 34 really bothers you. You know, why would God want to destroy Canaanites? There's a lot I could say there. Let me just say a couple quick things. At this point, God had already been forbearing with these people for more than 400 years. So this is not like a, a malice of temporary anger or something like that. This is sustained calls to repentance that were refused and refused and refused that have now been met with just judgment. You should also know in the Bible that God judges because God is holy and God does not want his people to engage in the sinfulness that is around them. But you should also know a further thing. If you like John 3.16, and I, I hope you do, then you have to also appreciate that God preserved the line of the Savior by protecting them from those who would destroy such. So seeing this is actually a good and important thing. Now, here's the principle that's still true for us, Emmanuel Baptist Church, situated in Raleigh and the Triangle. We as Christians are called to be God's people, we as Christians are called to separate from worldliness as well. And we as Christians are not to serve the idols that are around us. So what are idols in Raleigh? What are idols 
in America, especially in our cities. Let me first say to you, I love Raleigh. I really do. I love being here. I love that Snowmageddon is an unusual event here. (laughs) I love our greenways. I love our parks. I love our museums. I love two roosters. I skated at Iceplex. It was fantastic. I may become a Hurricanes fan. And one day my kids will probably root for one of our local schools. You can input your own efforts there. I love Raleigh. But I lament for Raleigh too. Because Raleigh is a city where you can buy ice cream at Aldi for your dog. Then you can get your dog groomed and take him to his spa. And Raleigh has 10 pet-friendly restaurants. And then you can drive across town to more than three convenient locations where you can murder your child. I love Raleigh, but I lament for Raleigh. In Acts 17, Paul sees Athens. When he sees it, we read in verse 16, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. And the next thing he did in verse 17 was he started to call them to repent. Now let's be honest. Most of us spend our whole life saving up money to take a cruise to see an important ancient city so we can be in awe of it. I saw Rome. I saw Athens. I saw London. Paul saw idols. Should we not see the same? We live in the middle of a needy, needy mission field. Don't let the skin-deep facade of religiosity confuse you as to the lostness around us. So what are some of the idols in the triangle? Convenience. Unencumbered freedom. Control. Many people in Raleigh believe that the most important thing in life is a particular quality of life. And anyone who would saddle that for me is an inconvenience that is not needed. Many people in Raleigh worship careerism the respect of their peers, the promotions that they pursue are the most important part of their identity. Many people in Raleigh treat sex as a consumer product. It's not a covenant. It's a contract to be used for whatever finds temporary fulfillment for me. Many people in Raleigh worship materialism. A sense of self-worth tied to what you own, what you've accrued. Many people in Raleigh worship what C.S. Lewis wisely called inner ring idolatry. The idea that I count if the right people accept me. In fact, you could argue that in Raleigh, it's literally rings. Inside the belt line is a certain vibe. You have to have the right kind of education. You have to be on the right side of certain political issues. You have to be on the right side of history. And the right gatekeepers have to include you in order for you to really count. That's just idolatry. In Raleigh, we worship expressive individualism or the rise and triumph of the modern self. I live unto myself, for myself, of myself, by myself, according to myself. Furthermore, because God made us to want to do good in our life, in Raleigh, we can reject God, but at the same time be gripped by an idol that I call social goodness legalism. By that, I mean you do good so that you feel good about yourself, but you determine what's good. I don't know how to explain this without being a little bit graphic, so excuse me. But think of how many people in Hollywood, they rape somebody, and then a few years later, they start a nonprofit for whales or wheat. 
That's what social goodness legalism is. You're trying to quell your conscience by trying to, hey, the right people now think I'm doing the right thing. We do that in our city all the time. So I love Raleigh. But Raleigh is a needy mission field, and we must see it. And Raleigh is a city of idols that we must separate from. So number one, see the world's idolatry. See it around you. Withdraw from it. Number two, we must see the horror of shedding innocent blood. Look now in verse 37. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. When these children are called innocent, it doesn't mean sinless. The same phrase innocent is used in the Bible of adults like Jeremiah, who we know are sinful. The phrase innocent means not worthy of death. So it's not a defense or it's not a just use of force. Instead, it's just unjust murder. But please notice in the text, especially the way poetry works in Hebrew, what is paralleled with idols in verse 38? Look back up in verse 37. What is paralleled with idols? Demons. Therefore, the idols that we give into are demonic in their origin. Now, what is this sacrifice that they're doing? It's actually what our brother read from us from Leviticus 20. The nation of Israel was sacrificing their own children to the pagan god of the Ammonites known as Molech. Uh, Molech was like a bronze, golden statue, and they would heat up the statues so it was very, very hot, and they would put their children in the statues so that the children would burn alive, and then the children would fall to the bottom of the fire, and then they would worship that god. Uh, even some of Israelites that you would think were godly Israelites failed in the same way. I'm reading in my own Bible reading, 1 Kings. In 1 Kings 11, we read this. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was no longer fully devoted to the Lord his God. And he made worship to Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built a high place for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. And the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel. Can I give you a word, please, especially those of you who are a generation or so ahead of me? Just This is on my heart just from reading through First Kings. It is amazing to me how many believers start well and finish terribly. Finish terribly. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you, don't finish terribly. Don't allow your heart's devotion to the Lord to soften and allow yourself to no longer fight against the idolatry around you. Solomon set up high places for Moloch. But the connections between modern-day abortion and child sacrifice to Moloch are deep. Because do you know what Moloch promised? Financial prosperity. No doubt many aborted are done so that we can maintain a certain lifestyle. Thus, the connections are nearly one for one. But don't miss the connection I showed you before. The idols are demons. And what do demons do? What did Jesus say of Satan? He is the father of lies. Demons deceive. How have demons been deceiving us on this issue? And here I'm going to lean 
totally on Pastor J.D. Greer. He wrote a really helpful article in the Biblical Recorder this month. It's worth you reading. I'm just going to summarize the eight objections he deals with very quickly, okay? Here are eight demonic lies, and here's how he quickly answers them. Number one, if you're so pro-life, why do you only care about babies before they're born? Well, there's some reminder we need to care about life in all stages, as I said earlier. But as J.D. Greer points out, that's just a red herring that diverts the discussion away from its actual point. Number two, a common objection. Only women can speak on this issue. Greer points out that's a logical fallacy. Whether or not it's right or wrong to intentionally kill someone depends on the person being killed. So you could ask which women. Uh, number three, shouldn't we spend more time speaking against the poverty system? And Greer answers, again, that's a logical fallacy. Whether or not abortion is wrong is a separate issue than the environment that surrounds it. Number four, another objection that is demonic in its origin. If you don't like abortions, well, then just don't have one. And Greer points out, that's a little bit like saying, well, if you don't like slavery, just don't own one. But it's still a system that destroys an entire people group. Number five, I'm personally opposed to abortion, but I don't think we should overturn Roe versus Wade. Greer points out that's a little bit like saying, I'm personally opposed to child abuse, but let's not get the law involved. Why not? Number six, abortion needs to be legal so that it's safe for mothers. And Greer gives some stats to show that actually that's really not even historically true, the whole safety argument. But then he just reminds us bluntly, We know that for the one being aborted, it's 100% unsafe. Number seven, what about situations of rape or incest? And this is one surely that we should have great compassion on and great consideration of. There's no question that sometimes hospitals have girls as young as 13 or 14 that have been abused or raped and they are now with child and it seems like their whole life will be destroyed. That should evoke our compassion and our grief for those. But we should also be able to say as Christians, That contrary to our culture's belief that life must always be comfortable for it to be happy, God repeatedly shows in Scripture that God is able to do great things through great pain. We should also remember that the innocent being inside the baby had no claim into this either. Number eight, he answers the objection, well, I have a right to my own body. But aren't there competing rights at stake? What about the right to the unborn child? Greer reminds us that in 1857, the Dred Scott decision tried to deal with the right of the slave owners to own their property versus the right for the slave to be treated as a human, and it sided with the slave owners to treat them as property. Really, the same logic is being used here. But let me give you one more objection that I think you need to know about. Often when I'm talking to Christians who are on the younger side, We'll say, Josh, let's not talk about abortion because that's negative. Let's just talk about adoption because that's positive. But what you may not realize is our world is now even against adoption on the same grounds. Actually, December of just last month, Elizabeth Spires was writing for the New York Times, and the title of her article was, I was adopted, I know the trauma it can inflict. You should read her article because she knows her birth mom and she knows her mom who raised her and they're both happy she's alive. And yet Elizabeth says that adoption is infinitely more difficult, expensive, dangerous, and traumatic from terminating a pregnancy in its early stages. And it surely is true that adoption would be difficult. 
But for her to say that taking a life is infinitely easier, cheaper, and safer is not true. Here I just want to remind us that if we think we can avoid the abortion conversation, we can't. All right, so now back to Psalm 106. Number one, we have to separate from the world's idolatry. Number two, we have to see the horror of shedding innocent blood. But now number three, we need to realize our sin makes us unclean. Look in verse 39 now. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. That's strong language. Let me explain it to you. In in the Bible, the most common metaphor for God and his people is marriage. And so when God's people are unfaithful to God, God calls it adultery. But when God's people are perniciously, horrendously unfaithful to God, God metaphorically relates it to prostitution. That's what he's referring to here. God's people have been so unfaithful that the only way to describe what they're doing is to use such strong language. We should understand, though, that our sin makes us unclean, and it shows incredible and shocking infidelity to our God. Now, number four. Our sin separates us from the goodness of God and lumps us into the crushing lostness around us. Look in verse 40. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his own heritage. He gave them into the land of the nations so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Throughout Psalm 106, we read that God often punishes through giving people what they want. When they want to be like the nations, he hands them over to the nations. Like Romans 1 says that when we reject the Creator for created things and we believe a lie, God gives us over to our sinful desires. It's actually interesting. If you read Psalm 106 later, you'll read one of the punishments they experienced was a plague. You could argue, well, that's just Old Testament God. Let me read Hebrews 10, 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now verse 28 of Hebrews 10. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who's trampled underfoot the Son of God? And profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outed the spirit of grace. For we know him who says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. The Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 1 Corinthians 10 explicitly tells us in verse 6 that what was recorded about Israel was recorded so that we would not repeat their idolatry. Now, if we only had these four statements from Psalm 106, we would be left with nothing but despair. But Psalm 106 is not only these verses. And so there is actually great reason for hope. Psalm 106 begins in verse 1 with praise the Lord. Look what the very last phrase of Psalm 106 is. Praise the Lord. It's actually one Hebrew word. It's the Hebrew word hallelujah. How does the psalm begin with hallelujah, and end with hallelujah when it records nothing but failure by the people? And the answer is because God has made a way to save sinners like us. Look in verse 
4, please, of Psalm 106. Look up to verse 4. The writer says, Remember me. O Lord, when you show favor to your people, help me when you save them, so that I may look, that I may rejoice, and that I may glory. This morning, the first thing you would need to do, the first thing I would need to do, we need to look to the Lord for salvation. And if you haven't called on the name of the Lord to save you from your sin, that's what you should first do today. But right along with that, we need to confess our sins. So look in verse 6, how he says, both we... And our fathers have sinned. We must take ownership and responsibility for our own sinful idolatry, even if it hasn't been expressed exactly like our neighbors. Throughout the psalm, actually, God's faithfulness will be contrasted with Israel's faithlessness, and God's justice will be contrasted with Israel's evil. But the reason there's hope is actually in verse 23. Would you look there? building up on all of Israel's sin. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Chosen one is only used in the singular four times in the entire Old Testament. It's used of Moses here. It's used of David. It's used of Saul. But then... It's used in Isaiah 42, verse 1 of the suffering servant of the Lord. Who is the chosen one that can stand in the breach and bear the just wrath of God so that we are not condemned? And the answer is revealed on the cross. When there Jesus stands in the breach, the just for the unjust so that he can bear the punishment our sins have earned, so that we can receive forgiveness that we have no right to. Verse 23, the wrath is taken away when the chosen one bears it. So this morning, the forbearance and mercy that gives us hope is not our ability to turn things around, but Christ's ability to bear our sin and change our heart. So notice how Psalm 106 ends. Look in verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Because of Jesus, through trust and faith in Him, we can have forgiveness of sin and reason to sing. But now let me pause to give a heart check for us, the church. We, the church, not just Emmanuel, but churches throughout our country, we too must repent. Many Christian churches in America are quick to condemn racism, as we ought, but refuse to condemn abortion. Many churches in America are quick to condemn abortion, but yet in their own personal life pursue sexually explicit material, are sexually promiscuous. And many in the church actually have committed sexual assault. Do we not see the connection between these? If we as the church are to stand on Holy Scripture, we must stand on all of it, or we are frauds to our core. First Peter 1 tells us in verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy in all your conduct. 
Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So church, let us not lament the world's waywardness when we are closet idolaters ourselves. So let me give you five specific actions for us at Emmanuel. Five specific actions for us at Emmanuel. Number one, let us pray together as a church and let our prayer always include confession of our own sin as Psalm 106 does. Let us pray together, but let it always include confession of our own sin. And let us not underestimate what God can do through such prayer. The Dobbs case right now, based on Mississippi, is probably the closest America has been to overturning Roe versus Wade. Let us not underestimate what God will do when his people pray. Number two, let us receive training that informs our compassion and outreach in this area. There are several things I can recommend to you on a personal level, but that's wise to do. Number three, let us then move from compassion to action in our community. We support urban ministries, but we can do more to get involved as groups go there and get involved in people's lives. We support Baptist children's homes, but we can do more to get involved there. We don't support pregnancy centers in Raleigh, but I believe we should. And I think what matters most is that we actually engage in other humans' lives on a personal level so that we can be used by God to make a difference. But in all of our compassion, let us not miss number four. Let us proclaim the good news that Jesus saves sinners. That his grace is greater than all our sin. And that the truth that shows us our need is always bathed with the goodness of our great Savior. So finally, number five then, let us live out the gospel in the circle of influence God has put you and I in. So where you work, where you live, live out God's holiness. Live out God's compassion. Live out God's grace. Live out with compassion but also candor, the horror of shedding innocent blood, but the forgiveness that comes through the mediator. Let's pray together this morning. God, we are evil people, and we live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We live in a city of beauty that we are thankful for. There are many evidences of your common grace. We also live in a city of great idolatry, And we live in a country of great idolatry. Over the last year, we have terminated an unprecedented number of human lives and done so rather callously. Very small amount of attention has been given to such and a a much higher amount of attention has been given in other places. And that is because our values are completely upside down. We don't view things like you view things. So I pray that one of the things you would do through Psalm 106 is align our heartbeat with yours. That we would find awful what you find awful. And what you find awful is the shedding of innocent blood. And that is why it is so shocking that Jesus Christ would offer himself, not as a child taken against his will, but as a lamb who went to the hill of Calvary willingly and went to pay for the sin of anyone who will turn from it and turn to Him in faith. Lord, thank You that there is someone who stood in the breach between us and a holy God and bore the righteous punishment so that could be removed and that we could be 
brought close to God. And Lord, Psalm 106 records that Moses sinned. (laughs) So there is no one but Jesus alone who can save us. I pray, Lord, that his salvation would work itself out in the good works of the church. So, Lord, use us as salt and light to make a difference where you've located us for your glory. In Christ I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.